Hey there, welcome to the sixth episode of the second season of Science and Society. I'm Drew, a med student and fitness junkie. And I'm Liv, a beauty queen turned biochemistry PhD candidate. We're two nerds on a mission to break down the science around us so you can apply it in your life. Today, we're taking yet another dive into the world of psychology. You've probably heard of obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. You might even have a pretty vivid picture of what someone with OCD says and does. Turns out, colloquial use of the phrase has really blurred fact and fiction. To find out what OCD really is, we're bringing on Dr. David Adam, author of The Man Who Couldn't Stop, OCD and the True Story of a Life Lost in Thought. Let's get after it. David Adam obtained a PhD in chemical engineering from Leeds University in the 1990s. However, he realized he preferred writing about science rather than doing it. Today, he is a best-selling author and an award-winning journalist who covers science, environment, technology, medicine, and the impact they have on people, culture, and society. After nearly two decades as a staff writer and editor at Nature, the scientific journal, and The Guardian newspaper, David set up as a freelancer in 2019. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you. Hello. Yeah, very pleased to be here. So I want to start with your book. That's actually how I found out who you are. Your book was recommended to me by a good friend of mine. And in your book, you talk about a pretty unique fact about your story and your experience with OCD and that you can really remember kind of distinctly the moment that really catapulted your first experience with obsessive thoughts, which eventually led to your diagnosis, which not many people can actually really pinpoint that. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, sure. So um, it was 1991. It was the summer. I was a first year student at, at university. I was home for the summer, staying with my parents. I'd been out with some friends, had a couple of drinks. I was walking home. I remember the t-shirt I was wearing. I remember where I was because I had thought it just sort of came out of nowhere. Um, and it was so it was so bizarre. It was as if a snowflake had fallen from the sky in the middle of August. And that thought was, you, you could have AIDS. You could have AIDS. And and this, I think, had sort of was prompted initially by an incident sort of six months ago when a friend had teased me about, I, I, I sort of went home with this girl and nothing had happened, but he was teasing me saying that I could have caught AIDS, which is it's a terrible thing to say, but I think it just shows you something yeah. about the context of the early 1990s. It was just, it was just synonymous with that kind of behaviour. Um, in the war the warnings and at the time he said I didn't really think anything of it but obviously something had lodged in my head and then it came out that night for, for whatever reason but yeah it was so it was so out of place which is why I think I remember it and also so scary and frightening because however much I tried to rationalize the thought or, or to convince myself that there was nothing I'd done that would be a, a risky uh, a risk the thought just didn't go away, and which is very unusual and very strange and, and, as it turned out, very memorable. So I think something that a lot of people maybe misunderstand when thinking about OCD is that oftentimes people with OCD and with obsessive thoughts actually recognize, to some extent, the absurdity and can kind of realize that what they're often obsessively thinking about is an obsession. It, you recognize that you're having these thoughts and you talk about this throughout your book that it wasn't something that happened and you were completely unaware of but you just can't convince yourself that these thoughts are are you know you can't really let go of them yeah there has to be an awareness for it to be OCD for there to be a a pushing against it a, a trying to reject it and in fact it's quite interesting because the word obsession 
comes originally from the Latin, um, obviously there, which means to besiege. So this would be a state in which an army would be, you know, around a city, but the, but crucially the defenders were still fighting back. They, they hadn't yet won. And, and the subsequent stage, once you'd taken the city and sacked it and put your flag up and killed everyone, that was that was called to possess a city, so to, to, to possess. And and as these terms drifted into medical use, um, the, the distinction remained. So possession is essentially psychosis. You know, if, if you really believe these things, which are completely irrational, then that's considered to be psychosis because you've lost touch with reality. But if you if you experience these thoughts and recognize them as being alien and irrational and and resist them, then that is it's one of the definitions of, of an obsession. You have to recognize it and you have to be able to resist it. And that's something I, to be honest, didn't understand. I think in the last couple of years, society and, and people have kind of made a bigger effort to be a little bit more cautious about how they talk about mental health and the fact that we just talk about mental health more at all is a really big change that I've experienced throughout my lifetime. That being said, I think OCD is still one of those things that is really not talked about very much and and not well understood by most people in that I think if you asked most people to kind of describe what they think OCD is, it's it's a lot of descriptions of hand washing or, you know, neatness. I think neatness is kind of the word that comes to mind for a lot of people. I couldn't count how many times I've heard people say, oh, I'm so OCD because they color code their notebooks for classes or something like that. Obviously, that's not what it is. That is very far from what OCD is. Can you tell us what is OCD and why is it different? And how is it different than someone who is really neat or is extremely particular about certain things? How do we kind of draw that distinction? Yeah. So if you think of just the letters OCD, so O is obsessive thoughts or obsessions. Uh, The C is compulsions. Now, the difference between those is the difference that you're describing in the way that people understand or misunderstand OCD because almost all of the um, public and media attention focuses on the C because of behaviours and, and in a sense they're easy to, to empathise with and so one of the compulsive behaviours could be for example washing your hands and everyone knows well I've washed my hands I know what that must be like it must be terrible to have to wash hands for now and so that sort of gives them an in they think that allows them to help understand what's going on. But actually, most people with, with OCD, the real problem is the O, which is the obsessive thoughts. And those by their by nature are hidden, they're, they're secret. And unless we actively choose to talk about them, nobody knows. And so it could be that someone is having obsessive thoughts about something terrible, that maybe their a loved one will die. Um, and they found the only way that they can get any control over those thoughts is to do something physical is to wash their hands as a, as a behavioral compulsion when you you can't outthink a thought when when you're cornered by a thought in this way the only sort of option you have is to change your behavior somehow and it could be washing your hands or it could just be knocking on wood or so what then happens is that when people have these obsessions they perform the compulsion as a way of making themselves feel better weirdly even if it's only very briefly but the problem there is that in performing the compulsion you give the obsessive thought more legitimacy and which makes the brain send it again and so very quickly you get locked into this cycle where the obsession fuels the behavior and the behavior then reinforces the obsession and so you need to perform the behavior again 
and and it's when those two combine in that way when when you get locked into that kind of cycle to such an extent that it then really interferes and, and lowers your quality of life then that's when the d comes in that's because it's now a disorder so there are plenty of people who might have the occasional weird thought or they might have a weird compulsive behavior but it's about degrees of scale how much are those combining to really cause a problem in their life so a lot of people when they say oh i'm a little bit ocd or i'm so ocd about this that they're almost always talking about one sort of very small aspect of what they view as a compulsive behavior it's complicated by the fact that there is something called obsessive compulsive personality disorder which um is about you know i have to make sure everything's nice and and fresh and, and alphabetical or symmetrical or whatever it is but the key difference there is they're doing that because they really enjoy it and they want it they want the house to look like that someone with ocd might have a particularly spotless bathroom because their compulsion is to, to polish the bathroom or to make sure there's no germs in the bathroom but the rest of the house can be a complete state i mean you know there are people with ocd who who don't change their underwear for months you know because that is not the focus of what they're concerned about so so, so but crudely the difference is both in the motivation why you would perform that compulsive behavior and also the fact that the compulsive behavior is just it's easy to show it's much easier to show someone washing their hands or arranging things symmetrically as a as a shortcut to show this character or this person has ocd rather than trying to get them showing the ruminations in fact while we're talking about this though what's different in a way is um the film the aviator about the life of howard hughes if you if you watch that all the way through the very end is a really good visual example of OCD because here's someone who he had the resources to fully indulge his ridiculous thoughts. So, you know, for example, a lot of people with OCD would come up with these incredibly long rituals, which are just impossible to follow through. And yet he, you know, he could pay someone to take the labels off all of his jars of tinned fruit. He, he could he had a room big enough that he could sit in the middle of it and not allow anyone to approach him unless they sterilize themselves or whatever so it just sort of shows the degree which those thoughts and that power that the thoughts have would take you to if 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 you could if you if you had the, the physical and the um financial resources to indulge it fully it's really interesting to hear about and and the different degrees to which it, ocd or ocpd can manifest itself in different people and how just how it comes to be in the sense that there's so many different, like you said, compulsions and, and different behaviors. And it, it really is interesting. So transitioning from OCD itself to the book you wrote, what did you learn through the process of writing that book? Is there a story or a person that really impacted you and either pushed you to write it or something internally that kind of made you want to write this and share this story? I, I wish it was that sort of noble, really. It was, it was more the fact that I, was, I'm, I work as a journalist. And I think after I had um, started to feel, I got some treatment for OCD eventually, and it was, it was quite good treatment, and I started to feel a bit better. I think when I started to feel a bit better, I, I wanted to, I started thinking about OCD more as a journalist than a, as a patient, I suppose. I wanted to know more about it. I wanted to know what had happened to me. And the more I read, the more I uh, found that a lot of, because, you know, being a journalist, I turned to, to a book 
you know, I suppose, you know, if, if you're a TV director, maybe you'd watch loads of TV programs on it. Or if you're a podcast producer, maybe there's isn't a podcast, but I've got loads of books and, and almost all the books, they were written by either sort of clinical professionals and they were very, you know, accurate as you'd expect and very precise, but they didn't really seem to engage with the personal experience or they tended to be written by people almost as a form of therapy you know, and it was, it was, there was no perspective. It was, it was just like being, you know, strapped to the front of a car going along the freeway. It was just, everything was just, and, 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 and that didn't really say a lot to me either about my own personal case. And so as a, as a, as a writer in search of a book topic, I thought, well, maybe this is it. Maybe I could write. Cause I knew that um, Andrew Solomon had written a book about depression, which, which did this. He took a, you know, a quite a, quite a a clinical approach, but also he, he introduced his own story as a way of of humanizing the story, I suppose. So you, you know, so you got both. You got the clinical perspective and you got the personal perspective. And yeah, and, and then after you know, and after that, you just get lucky. You you have an idea, you write a proposal, and hopefully a publisher would take it on. And, and they did. And I think part of the reason for that was sort of the personal aspect of it that I was going to describe, but also I think it was just the sheer kind of weirdness of the fact that someone who has a scientific background and understands the science and could be subject to these just crazily almost anti-science ideas very irrational ideas so yeah I was uh, since the book has come out I've spoken to way more people with OCD than I ever did before people either contact me because they want help or they just want to say hello or I speak at well I used to speak at conferences when there were such things as conferences <laughs> um since then, I think the most the most important thing that I've learned is sort of the the scope of although OCD can follow certain themes and the, you know and and the concerns about contamination or germs, which I guess mine would be is, is one of those. The, the sort of as you were mentioning before, Drew, the um, the scope of it is limited only by the human imagination. I mean, I've met some people with the most extraordinary obsessions, which to them are deadly, deadly serious and, and are ruining their lives. You know, I met someone who was afraid that when they close their eyes, when they open them again, the entire world would have changed. You know, so, so that every time they close their eyes, they were subject to this huge anxiety. You know, other people who, there was a guy who um, every time he, he drew a, a number with a pen or a pencil that had a zero in it, like an eight or a nine. So within that space, he, he would get visions of his family dying in horrible ways so he couldn't ever write anything down wow. so you know these are all um i guess they sound extraordinary examples of ocd but the, but the way it manifests itself is exactly the same from person to person you know they were struggling with their thoughts just in the way that i was struggling with mine and in fact i had group therapy before i wrote the book but um I, when i had group therapy it's quite interesting because sort of five or six people in a room, all of whom have their own individual versions of OCD, which everybody else can see is ridiculous. And yet we all think ours is really significant and important and for real. You know, we can see all of that doesn't happen, but in my case, it's really serious. And so that's, it's really, it's helpful in a way because it shows, because when you have OCD and you're told you have OCD, there's a big part of you that thinks, I don't really, it, you know, it's not really OCD, it really is a genuine my thoughts are real and the problem is real and this isn't and, and and accepting actually that when you have these crazy thoughts that it is down to OCD rather than some kind of legitimate issue you need to, to worry about 
is really difficult. But now I've met I met so many different people with so many different forms of OCD or so many different topics that their OCD focuses on. I kind of nothing would surprise me anymore, I suppose. So actually you met, brought up a group therapy and that was just one of the various treatments that you had as you kind of explained through the book some of which were a little ridiculous the rubber band particularly uh is one that i remember that you it was essentially every time you the the doctor told you to, to snap a rubber band on your wrist right every time you had an obsessive thought so some were not particularly uh ideal treatment options or really options that i think today we would look at as legitimate at all but since you've you know gone through your own set of treatments and since writing this book and kind of just being so involved in the field of OCD research kind of as as an advocate as an author and as someone who has OCD how have you seen those things change throughout your lifetime and kind of seen the the research and the treatment options change and progress hopefully to some extent so I mean I had OCD for a long time you know 25 almost 30 years this year so the rubber band treatment was and it was 25 years ago. So, you know, even, even then it was hardly, you know, cutting edge <laughs> clinical science, but, um, you know, it's it's now completely discredited. Um, so that was an idea called thought stopping, and it was sort of based on uh, behavioral psychology that you could learn, everything is learned, and you can unlearn it by associating it with unpleasant stimuli. So I think, you know, that's largely gone away. I think, um, depending on which country you are, so in places like France and in parts of the States, you know, Freudian psychoanalysis is still very popular. And, and you know, Freud had his own ideas about OCD and, and, and the way it should be treated. Um, I think, you know, in most evidence-based approaches now, there's sort of a consensus that the way to treat OCD is, is to give a relatively high dose of an antidepressant, an SSRI drug. Not that we're depressed, it just seems to help for some reason um, and give them this um, cognitive behavioral therapy which is sort of a form of so, so CBT as it's called is is used for all sorts of different mental issues but for OCD it's, it's a particular type of CBT which largely revolves around sort of um, it's called exposure and response prevention and it what it means is that what we talked about at the beginning was that when you have one of these thoughts the only weapon you have is to change your behavior so that's the compulsion. Essentially, it's about stopping that. It's about stopping that, stopping the behavior. And we can talk about that again a little bit more if you want. But just coming back to your question, I think I think the difference is that, sadly, I'm not sure there is a, a super new treatment for OCD around the corner. You know, that you, you can improve this and you can change that. But there's, certainly there's no new drugs on the way that we know about. The actual, the CBT doesn't work for everybody all the time, but it works for most people most of the time and most people get to feel a bit better. But the real tragedy is that um, a lot of people with OCD don't get access to even that best treatment. You know, obviously there's differences in healthcare systems. So I was lucky over here, we have a publicly funded system so I could get it all for free. But I was very lucky because I lived nearby. Um, if you live in different parts of the country, you don't get access to it or it takes an awful long time. It can be six months or a year to wait. So when people say to me about, you know, what would be the next or the best way of improving treatments, it's almost about let's get more people access to the stuff that we know already works. I think it's really sad that um, a lot of people, because there's so many hurdles that you have to cross to be able to get treatment. You know, when you have OCD, you have to recognize it. You have to 
to go for help, you have to be diagnosed, you have to believe the help is going to work and you don't have to follow through the help, which is actually quite traumatic at times. And at any of those stages, it's easy just to give up, to not bother. Um, so people go through all those phases and all those stages and then they get prescribed or they get uh, or they pay for a treatment which just isn't suitable or appropriate and it doesn't work and they think it's because there's something wrong with them. Well, I've had the treatment, you know, the treatment didn't work and actually they didn't have the right treatment. You know, before, before, I'm a reasonably well-educated, scientifically literate person, but before I wrote this book, I couldn't have told you the difference between a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, a therapist, a counsellor, an analyst, you know, all these terms, which are all hugely different and all do a very different thing in a different way. But to most people, they would just be, I got help, you know, whether it was a counsellor or a therapist or an analyst or a psychologist. And, and and, and actually, there's lots of different types of help. And actually, for OCD, there's one particular type of help which seems to work the best. Yeah, from a, from a patient perspective, that picture you've painted, it just sounds so intimidating and overwhelming because there's so many different options that all might work. Like you said, the best evidence we have right now is for an SSRI and cognitive behavioral therapy, but not necessarily specific for OCD. So you think about modern medicine and you'd like to think that we have all the answers to all the diseases, but we, we simply don't. And it's, it's like remarkable, overwhelming, scary, but also kind of exciting to think about where we are and where we might be headed with treatment of OCD and related disorders. That being said, you mentioned that you first received your diagnosis or realized you had OCD or first year university. How did having OCD affect your ability to learn, to study, just life in general as a student? I think most graduate students would agree that it's a relatively stressful and difficult time, no matter who you are and no matter what you're dealing with. I mean, even if your life is perfect and wonderful, the process of getting a PhD is quite a burden. So I can't imagine what that must have been like while also trying to navigate what would have been a relatively new diagnosis at that time, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the diagnosis, I guess it helped in a little bit because it just made you feel connected to there was a world in which other people felt like this. And some of those people got to feel better. I didn't really believe the diagnosis because I still thought I was genuinely affected by these issues that were, that were going through my head. In terms of, you know, how it affected me, I think it's, a, it's an impossible question to answer because there was no control experiment, right? It was only me and I had OCD, so I don't know what would have happened. If I didn't have OCD, I don't know how I would have done things differently or how I would have experienced things differently. I think what I can say is that, um, so my OCD is very portable. You know, I could, I could take it home with me and then do my compulsions at home or I'd, I'd telephone people or, you know, seek reassurance. So I, 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 whereas some people have OCD that stops them leaving the house, you know, so that would have been a very, very different experience. So in most of what I did, I was there, you know, I was present, I was, I was engaged, I was, I was paying attention but I was just thinking about something else at the same time. And that's the simplest way of describing it. It's a bit like we're all capable of having parallel narratives in our head at the same time. So, you know, we're thinking about something while also sort of thinking about something else or even more than one thing at the same time. It just happened that my parallel narrative was always the same thing. And it was something that made me very unhappy and very scared. So I was pretty 
unhappy really i mean that, that that answers the question you know i was able to i was able to do things i was able to perform and to pay attention and to, and to re, and to do exam or to do science whatever it was i just didn't enjoy doing it because i was always thinking about how i might have caught this terrible disease which is what my, my ocd was around catching hiv AIDS. you know in, in a sense i lived with it in a way because i could because there was no other option you know it's like and I think that the thing about the treatment was that I, because the, the elastic band stuff didn't work, and I knew there was probably better treatment out there, but I almost wanted to you to save it for, to sort of hold it back for reserve, for, to use in reserve in case things got really bad. Because I, I was kind of frightened that if I went for the proper help and that didn't work, then I was out of options. So however bad I felt, I always thought, at least I've got this opportunity in, in the future if I need it. Um, and I, yeah, and so it was. It's, it sounds ridiculous now, but I just lived with it for years, you know. And there were, it wasn't it wasn't complete misery, you know. There were times, there were things that I enjoyed doing, which it's a bit like if you get distracted from something, you know, you're not suddenly you're not thinking about anything else. You're only thinking about one thing, you know. I'm sure sports psychologists would call it flow or something like that. <laughs> Focus, you know. It's about, and so I would do, you know, I'd play a lot of sport. I would. Um, I go and support a sports team, you know, you get carried away in the moment and things. But every morning, you know, it was pretty much back to square one. Something that I found on your website that I really wanted to ask you about this actually kind of related to how you moved away from doing science to writing about science. But you used the word catastrophic several times on the first page of your thesis. Do you remember why you did that? Uh, yeah, it was, it, it was. So it was a thesis about acid mine drainage. You know, when, when you when you close down a coal mine, it fills up with water because you're no longer actively pumping it out. Um, and then when that water then escapes from the mine, it takes with it a whole load of uh, minerals which have been dissolved from the rocks that are exposed in the mine. In this case, it was it was so what happened was the water came out of the coal mine, very acidic and a very full of um, iron, which oxidized to form basically rust. So you get these rivers in, in Wales where the coal mines have been that were orange and they were catastrophic to the life <laughs> in the rivers because they would settle down and they would choke the river off. Um, and so that was my thesis was about trying to find ways to deal with this catastrophic form of pollution. <laughs> well, I'd agree with you there. That, that does sound like a rather catastrophic phenomenon. I read that bit on the website and I, I laughed out loud because... When I think about a thesis, when I think about graduate school, when I think about such high-level science, the word catastrophic just kind of naturally comes to mind a lot of the time. <laughs> I just, I was very curious uh, in what context things were being catastrophic, but that actually makes sense. There's a good chance that catastrophic will come up in my thesis at some point. <laughs> if you're a fish, it was catastrophic. And if you're a fisherman, it was pretty catastrophic because there were no fish left to catch. So really it was an appropriate judgment of the situation. I think so. I think, you know, you could defend it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a, a rather fun way to wrap this up. David, thank you so much for joining us. It was truly a pleasure to be able to speak with you and learn more about OCD. And if you could just let everybody know where they could find your book, that would be awesome. Yeah, well, so the book is called uh, The Man Who Couldn't Stop. There, there is a US edition with all the words spelt wrongly as you like to do it um, <laughs> <laughs> do we say it's all in all good bookshops or do we all say it's it's on all good taxpaying websites i don't know take your pick 
Awesome. Thank you so much. And it is a phenomenal book. I really enjoyed it. Um, from a scientific perspective, I thought it was extremely interesting. But just from a narrative perspective, it's a very, very good book. I couldn't put it down for about a week. Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm proud of it. You know, of all the kind of work that I've done, I was never a very good scientist. And as a journalist, you get to kind of write about what other people write about. So that was my that was my project, you know, and I put a lot into it. And um, yeah, I'm pleased that you liked it. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks for being on the show. Well, boy, oh boy, what another great interview. I was so excited to talk to him. I mean, I remember finishing the book in late spring, early summer. And as soon as we came up with the idea of doing this podcast, I had him down as a future guest. So to have interviewed him is really, really exciting. Yeah, it was awesome. I guess now you have a special little treat in store for all of us. Oh, absolutely. It's learning with Liv. I think this is what, number two? We're back. We're We're back, back, baby. (laughs) So I don't know why you aren't tackling this one because you were the neuro major, but you know, such is life. So bear with me as I try to tackle some of the neuroscience and up and coming research on OCD. I'm excited. So something I want to talk about is just generally the brain areas that are associated with OCD. So it's pretty hard to pinpoint where psychological disorders actually kind of happen in the brain, right? And that makes it pretty unique. And I've actually kind of thought about this as I was prepping this segment, because when you have most health conditions or any given health condition, you can usually kind of target and pinpoint where in your body something's going wrong, right? You know, if you have high blood pressure, you kind of know what's going on. If you have I don't know, a heart disease, you know, it's in your heart, but psychology and psychological disorders are so difficult to really map that way because the brain is just so complex. But there have been scans of OCD patients that have actually kind of helped scientists and doctors figure out what parts of the brain are more likely or most likely associated with OCD. And a lot of them actually pretty much make sense. So these scans have shown increased blood flow and energy use in four main areas of the brain. The first one is the prefrontal cortex. So the cortex is obviously a pretty complicated part of the brain. Drew, if you want to chime in on that and kind of fill us in just generally what the cortex does. So the prefrontal cortex is essentially the part of our brain that sets us apart from other mammals and other animals. It's the latest development in evolution and what is, and what's the next step of past apes, essentially. It gives us personality gives us higher order thinking so when you think of prefrontal cortex think of you know more complex thinking cool so in the case of ocd and kind of in the context of ocd the part of the prefrontal cortex that scientists think is actually relevant to ocd is the fact that it's involved in both reward and error detection so the next one is the corpus striatum so this part of the brain inputs into the basal ganglia so bear with me here we'll talk about the basal ganglia in a second And like the prefrontal cortex, the corpus striatum has a huge range of functions, but it's also involved in reward and reinforcement, which again makes sense when you think about the symptoms and behaviors associated with OCD. So then next we head to the thalamus, which is basically a big signal relay center in the brain. And together with the first two, the prefrontal cortex and the corpus striatum, the thalamus comprises the corticostriatothalamocortical CSTC, signaling pathway. So this pathway receives, processes, and returns information that comes from the prefrontal cortex through the thalamus and back out to the cortex. So it's really just this giant CSTC pathway 
that really has been implicated in OCD and the symptoms associated with it. Generally, the CSTC pathway has an excitatory effect, so it's kind of associated with like pleasure and things that that keep our brains going and make our brains run. Also, understandably so, the CSTC pathway is involved in modulating the initiation and sustainability of behavioral routines. So as you build habits and build routines and build kind of repetitive behaviors, you're often using the CSCC pathway to kind of process those behaviors and solidify them in your mind. Cool, right? Makes sense. So the fourth one, which we brought up earlier because the corpus striatum inputs into the basal ganglia is the basal ganglia. So generally the basal ganglia is involved in motor and behavior programs, which again makes sense because the second half of OCD is the compulsion, right? So you need to actually physically do something or have some sort of behavior associated with the obsession. So that's kind of where the basal ganglia comes in, in the context of OCD. So scientists kind of taking all this information together think that there's generally just this miscommunication of some sort between the basal ganglia and the cortex, right? So the cortex receives some sort of information and the basal ganglia doesn't react the way it should, right? There's some kind of disconnect there. And actually the basal ganglia is pretty important in other neurological disorders like Parkinson's. So this isn't the first time we've seen this. And that's also what makes these disorders so complicated is because, well, so what if the basal ganglia is not working well? Like what about it isn't working well? But at least knowing what parts of the brains are involved is a start. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm gonna go to my favorite part now, right? Which is research, of course. So there's actually some pretty cool stuff going on in the world of OCD research. And the first one I wanna talk about is this really cool trial that is happening or perhaps already happened. There was no follow-up, so I'm not entirely sure. In Australia, there's a research group out there that was looking at an amino acid supplement called N-acetylcysteine or NAC as a potential therapeutic for OCD. So generally, NAC has anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties, and it influences a lot of different neurochemicals within the brain. So this also is somewhat of an umbrella treatment, but it's shown promising results in bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. So perhaps it has some kind of role in, I don't know, balancing out the brain chemistry and kind of setting things back to where they need to be. It's also been used, actually, which I think is more interesting when you think about the context of OCD, it's helped patients with impulse control and addictive behaviors, uh, even with those that have cocaine or marijuana dependencies. So it's, it's shown to be pretty successful with some pretty serious issues. And that, that one's actually pretty exciting to me. Yeah, that, that's really cool. It, the fact that this is showing promise in behavioral types of uh, disorders and right. things like that, that that shows promise because we're looking at the same umbrella of pathology. Right. Yeah. It seems like this kind of just makes a little bit more sense for what we're actually trying to deal with when you're looking at what OCD is and kind of, you know, OCD is not a depressive disorder necessarily, right? It has, it has a very different range of symptoms and range of behaviors associated with it. So I feel like this is a little bit more on target than just giving someone an antidepressant. And the other one I wanted to talk about comes out of a research collaboration from two universities in London. Uh, They actually found that OCD patients have increased levels of a protein called immunomodulin, or IMUD, which is kind of fun. The name's kind of cool. Very. And this protein is in their lymphocytes, which is a type of immune cell. 
What's interesting is that a separate research group found that ADHD patients also have kind of disrupted levels of eye mood. So again, kind of somewhat of an umbrella or more broad target they're looking at, but still kind of getting at a different part of the chemistry and the biochemistry behind OCD. Mice were given an antibody to block eye mood, and these mice showed a complete decrease in anxious behavior. So they think that eye mood doesn't really influence neurotransmitters directly, but might actually work to kind of influence gene control in brain cells. So this is a super, super early study, but it is kind of an alternative way to approach these classic pharmacological treatments that interact more directly with brain chemistry. And this this seems to be more on point, on target. We went from antidepressants to the NAC treatment that is a little more on target, more behavioral types of things. And now this with ADHD, when I think of ADHD and OCD, it, it seems to be coming even closer to the, the desired target, which is promising. Right, because it's basically your brain is receiving some sort of feedback that causes some sort of behavior in a way that is disruptive to your own life. So I, I really hope that this leads to one day a much better and more specific treatment because, I mean, we need it, right? And and David's story was an incredible success story, but there needs to be more of those, right? That that shouldn't be the exception to the rule. So I look forward to a day where not only OCD, but so many other psychological disorders that kind of don't really have a great treatment regimen, maybe have much better and much more efficient options. You and me both. And hopefully you're going to be the scientist that, that <laughs> finds that. You're putting a lot on my plate. You know, high expectations. You shoot for the moon, you land amongst the stars. Oh, okay. Okay, Droopy. Well, that's all for this week's episode. To learn more about OCD and David's own experiences, check out his book, The Man Who Couldn't Stop. The links to purchase his book, helpful resources, and the studies Liv mentioned are all in the episode description. As always, you can <clears throat> sorry. As always, you can follow us on Instagram at Science and Society to catch our new releases, upcoming topics, and our science shenanigans. If you're enjoying our show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find us. We release new shows every other Monday, so episode 7 is coming your way on April 5th. Peace, love, and science.